Hello, this is Mike Harbath with the Shoot the Moon podcast for this week, broadcasting live and direct from Revenue Rocket World Headquarters. Thanks for tuning in. Kind of a special podcast episode uh, this week as it is our 100th podcast. Wow, woohoo! Really excited about that. With me today, I have my partners, Ryan Barnett and Matt Lockhart. Welcome, guys. Pretty awesome. It's uh it's amazing that it just keeps rolling and uh you know more and more when we, when I'm talking to people that I haven't met before and they're like, "Well, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't really care too much about how your business is going, but man, that podcast is sure awesome." So, we're getting some pretty cool feedback and you know, I know, Ryan, you're kind of the brainchild behind the whole deal, so congrats to you. Uh, well, thank you, and thanks for both being really gracious hosts on, on this. Uh, we do this uh, really to share the knowledge that we've gained over 20 years here at Revenue Rocket. And, and Mike, uh, when you founded Revenue Rocket uh, over 20 years ago, did you think you'd have 100 podcasts? Uh, no, I didn't even know what a podcast was 20 years ago, so I, I think that... Uh... You know, that's just a testament to uh, how technology moves forward and how things change, I guess. But uh, could never have envisioned it. Certainly been a really, really fun thing to do. And uh, I'm thankful that uh, you guys join me here uh, every week for this thing. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, it, it has been good. Uh, Matt or Mike, you got any favorite podcasts that have come to your mind or anything that uh, has that we hear from our, our customers and guests that have uh, struck their fancy? Well, certainly there's a few that come to mind. Uh, one in particular uh, is a podcast that we did with uh, Ashley Battelle, who runs our outreach team. You know, Ashley's a fascinating guy and uh, certainly would encourage you guys to tune in. And there's some, you know, gems and little-known facts in there about, you know, he brings a wealth of experience to our firm, and we're thankful to uh, have him. But the podcast I found to be very, very interesting, and we shared some um, some details on that podcast about how we do outreach and how we think that, you know, firms like ours should do that. So that was one of my favorites that came to mind. Matt, how about you? Well, I think, you know, one thing that we uh, – we learn is is that whenever we have guests on, <laughs> we get a whole bunch of great feedback uh, soon to be coming. I don't think it's released yet, but uh, we had C.J. Strell from our finance team on just talking about the, sort of the conditions of the market and, and what's going on there. But, you know, as, as much fun as it is to be with you two guys, I think we need more guests. So I think more guests are to come in uh in the second hundred podcasts that we do what do you what do you guys think yeah for sure you know maybe we need to start looping in some of our clients on these i think that would you know get some insights from them and so you know maybe that that's what we'll do in the next hundred podcasts start to loop in some personal anecdotes from our clients and how they see the market, how they experience the market, and and both strategy and M and A, you know, initiatives. I think that would be valuable. Well, we know they're uh, a a lot closer to the market. They got their uh, arms and legs full on in it, and probably quite a bit smarter than us too. So I think that'd be awesome to get our clients in there. 
Yeah, and, and I'd love to loop in the opportunity here that if the audience member is here and you're listening today and you want to be part of the conversation, now drop us a line over at info at revenuerocket.com and uh, we're we're happy to talk about topics that you're interested in and we're happy to uh, perhaps even you could be a guest on the show. Uh, so love to love the idea, guys. Uh, my favorite actually some was, uh, and this is a little bit like picking your own children, uh, but I think it what drives us in this podcast is what we're seeing on a weekly basis. And, and it, they're very real things that our customers experiencing that we're seeing and what, and how um, we as deal makers are, are reacting. And so when we're giving, uh, talking through these podcasts, uh, there's a real modicum of truth and importance to what we're working through daily. So this is as much of a passion. And uh, if if you're trying to learn about M&A, I truly think this is something that allows a, uh, a novice to, to become an expert. And we're trying to share as much as we can and give back as much as we can uh, to the community out there uh, for knowledge transfer. And uh, we hope over the years we've earned your trust. And if you do need to do something in the M&A space and you're in the IT services world and you want to see growth like you've never seen before, uh, we hope that you can join us over at Revenue Rocket. Um, long way to say, uh, I'm still going to pick my favorite. Uh, I really loved the selling in or selling out, kind of leaning in or leaning out episode we did uh, just, just a few weeks ago. I think there's so many opportunities for uh, entrepreneurs to keep going in their business and sell in and, and the opportunities for growth. And I also really appreciate understanding when someone has built something and it's time to monetize their life's work that they have the opportunity to do so gracefully and you can have the, and go down a few different uh, paths to get there. So really encourage you to listen to that. I think it's, it must be, you know, in the, uh, in the nineties uh, kind of episode 90 ish uh, timeframe. I think that's an awesome one. I'll t- I didn't say uh, mine, I think was, you know, how to get ready. Right. I don't remember what we titled it, but it was, uh, making sure you're ready to embark upon a, uh, a merger and acquisition program. And, uh, you know, we sort we shared some insights on the sell side as well as on the buy side. In, uh, and I thought I got a bunch of great feedback there. And I think we're probably going to go back to that one. And I think doing it with one of our clients as well as our chief strategist, uh, Chelsea Nord, you know, could be a, an up-and-coming podcast here shortly. Love it. Yeah. Love it. I agree. Transitioning, and thanks for the, and thank you for, for everyone who listens, and thank you to Matt and Mike uh, for, for being here weekly, and, and for uh, Maddie Shank, who, who really helps us pull this all together as well. Today, uh, we really want to talk to kind of we have two topics, both very top of mind. Uh, one of them is uh, in a macroeconomic environment, uh, we're in the, the late part of summer here in 2022. Uh, we are seeing some pressure from uh, capital markets. We're seeing some uh, kind of macroeconomic issues that are daunting for for some. Uh, we saw kind of a fall in the NASDAQ, you know, followed by kind of a huge jump up in stocks in the last couple of weeks. And and Mike, it sounds like you've had a ton of discussions lately about the current state of M&A, the state of deal flow. 
when it comes to um, some advisors that you've been working with, what we've seen in our deal flow and, and what we've kind of seen in the, the overall environment, uh, just uh, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are and kind of where, you know, what do you think things are at and, and tell us a little bit more. Yeah, I think it's it's been fascinating, Ryan, you know, because we obviously are in the market talking to people every day. And, and you know, I started to uh, take a pretty hard look at, you know, what people were experiencing, both our customers um, and, and what we'll call friends of the firm. We have lots of people that have been clients um, that we stay in touch with. You know, we, we kind of have a client for life philosophy around here. So uh, whether the meters run out or not, with our work with our clients, we uh, we certainly love to stay in touch with them and keep the dialogues open. Um, and as well as a lot of trading partners, and some of those include lawyers and, you know, private equity firms that may or may not be our clients that we're talking to. And I, you know, wanted to share an observation sort of that I had after talking to a bunch of folks over the last several weeks, which was, you know, many firms and and PE firms and and uh, uh, partners and, you know, advisors saw some pretty material slowdown in sort of their net new customer acquisition in May and June. Uh, some saw that even in April, May, and June, um, with a big comeback in July and August. And so, you know, I don't know if this was just sluggishness of a uh, pipeline early in the kind of early in the summer or kind of through late kind of second quarter, um, or if it was, you know, indicative of where the market was. Certainly, it was co- whether it was coincidental or or happened to be you know, the stock market reaching a low in June and and then roaring back in July and, uh, you know, confidence in the market. But um, almost universally, uh, we saw folks see slowdowns in May and June or April, May and June with big comebacks in July and August. Um, Certainly in talking to a lot of these advisors and others, um, there's a a sentiment that um, that was kind of what we're going to see. Um, for what we want to call sort of slowdown or sort of recessive headwinds uh, in that depending sort of on what happens in the next eight weeks or so will determine whether that was the low and things are going to continue to proceed and come back. It's my opinion that we could still see some pretty material market volatility through the end of the year. However, it I you know, being a glass half full kind of guy, I think we're going to see a pretty material uptick in the fall quarter um, and that, you know, we're going to have a uh, a return to normal if we can consider, you know, the end of uh, 21 and into 22 to be normal as we get to the end of this year. And so um, pretty short, um, sort of quiet uh, or slowdown, if it turns out to be that way um, and, uh, you know, in many ways could be. Um, you know, seen as not not much of a a market correction, um, and uh, in some, if it comes to be, which what most of my advisors and market pundits are telling me, you know, maybe the maybe the Fed and you know the markets coalesce around a soft landing after all. I guess it'll still take a couple months to know for sure. Yeah, the, it, it's been an interesting time to, to see. I think when you, if you listen to a re, very recent podcast, I think it's uh, 99, 
to talk about the impact of of capital markets, the the cost of of money, and and kind of the cost of capital. Uh, there, there's you can understand why there's some constriction in the market. Uh, but I'll go back to I think what, for me what the key finding in that podcast was very much focused on companies that have that are well run that are in the IT services market that are continuing to do good things on behalf of clients will continue to still be favorable acquisition targets. And if you're in this business and you're able to uh, continue to uh, attract and retain uh, customers, attract and retain talent, and be able to specialize in a market that you can dominate, uh, you have an opportunity to be a very, very favorable seller. And, uh, and buyers who are able to to work through this market, have an opportunity to to still get growth together through acquisition. Well, I mean, look at the jobs report in July, right? I mean, it blew away all expectations. And, uh, you know, we know that the unemployment or negative unemployment in IT has been in place for a while, uh, years, really. And... Um, so, I mean, it, it, the, the, the laws of supply and demand are in favor for, uh, sellers in this environment in the IT services space. And there's, there's no doubt. Now, obviously, it's one of the, the main strategic imperatives for buyers. And so, in our space, it's interesting, you know, you're talking about trading partners. I've got a, you know, very good friend, a much better golfer than, than uh, any of us who uh, who is an M and A advisor, but focuses in the manufacturing space, and you know it's a little tougher there <laughs> than it is uh, than it is in in our you know tech enabled services space. So I like your glass half full idea, Mike, and we're just going to keep plugging ahead, and uh, and and good times are ahead. For sure. I think that uh, time will tell, but I think we're, you know, I think people need to remember that we've never seen, you know, a lot of people ask about, well, what's the impact on valuations or rising interest rates and, you know, what has been the impact ultimately over history? And, you know, I, I think sometimes we forget that, you know, it's a very narrow band of Im, uh, impact from pretty extreme markets, uh, headwinds. So uh, it's, if you're running a great services business, It'll always there'll always be demand for it, frankly, uh, tech-enabled services, and because of the additional, as you mentioned, Matt, the additional uh, uh, impact of labor and labor shortages and talented labor shortages, um, I think we're going to see a very healthy M&A market moving into the rest of 22, and certainly as we move into 23. That's great, and you know, and just a reminder: if we had a crystal ball, uh, we would be much more successful in life and not needing to work too much, but uh, that's how kind of how we're calling it today and, and what we see for the, for the, at least the near term future. Uh, to move on a little bit, guys, in uh, staying true to our theme of dealing with topics that are near and dear to our hearts and what we've seen in the last couple of weeks, we're nearing to a point in a deal in which working capital discussions have come up and uh, working capital is is something that is critical for everyone, and uh, we'd love uh, Mike uh, just help us understand kind of what working capital is, and I'd love to hear uh, for uh, let us understand kind of 
what it is and why it matters, and we'll start there. Yeah, for sure. By the strictest definition, uh, working capital is uh, current assets minus current liabilities. You need enough uh, current assets in the case of cash and AR to cover your liabilities or what you owe um, in order to run the business. Uh, and by definition, that is working capital. Uh, certainly cash flow and the ability to actually pay those bills on time has much more to do with cash conversion, you know, timing and ratios of, of the assets as to cash versus AR and a variety of other things. But by strict definition, it's just current assets minus current liabilities. And I think what's interesting is that there's really only one time as a seller uh, that you get to harvest excess working capital. And maybe I should, and that's when you sell. Uh, most small businesses keep excess working capital on the balance sheet in the form of cash um, so that they can they don't have to get into their line of credit um, and that they're able to operate a little more efficiently because they don't have the carrying cost of being in and out of their line of credit, uh, which essentially is a loan that's given to you, a short-term loan by your bank, um, and you're going to pay interest on that money when you need it. Um, and there may be, you know, reasons for using that, whether it has to do with sort of your cash conversion timing or um, a situation where, you know, maybe there's a little dip in the business that requires you to, uh, you know, have to get into your line of credit to um, kind of keep everybody, uh, uh, keep all your bills paid on time. And so um, there's, uh, but but in short, um, you know, the working capital is the uh, making sure that you have enough positive asset value to cover your liabilities and and make sure you have enough cash to pay your bills on time. Um, back to the point of, um, you know, being able to harvest, we'll talk, you know, in a sale why, how to optimize that and how to harvest here in a minute. But, um, you know, the the concept of harvesting excess working capital may not come to mind for many sellers. Um, and there's also a sort of a vast amount of uh, misunderstanding as to, you know, how much they can harvest and when they can harvest it. And we'll try to tackle some of those topics as well. Yeah. yeah Mike, thanks. Thanks for that. The general definition here. I just, I, I want to understand this. So when companies acquire, a seller, there there has to be enough cash in the business to run it as a growing concern. So, for for example, this is this would be something like having enough cash to operate the next payroll. Is is that am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, I mean the the, the definition in most of the legal documents um, in an M and A transaction defines that when you buy a business that you're buying it as a going concern, right? It is a, it has enough capital to operate independent of the transaction. And I think as a seller, you have to keep that in mind. It'd be, you know, for example, if you, if you, the shoes on the other foot and you're selling your business, let's say you're a buyer, you wouldn't want to, as a buyer, have to put in a bunch of cash in addition to what you spent on the business in order to operate it. So you really have to be mindful about how you 
transition the business. Um, now, with that said, buyers sometimes take advantage of sellers. I don't want to say all the time, but sometimes. Um, because this whole concept of what is working capital and how much of it is enough is somewhat misunderstood. And so we'll try to add some clarity to that here and, you know, things that you should look out for as well. Um, but it, it is a fact that if you're going to sell your business, you need to be thinking about selling it as a going concern. And so it should be adequately capitalized to operate without the buyer having to, you know, put cash in to operate it. And just a follow-up or clarification there, how long is that for, Mike? Is that like enough to, to run it for 30 days, 60 days indefinitely? Yeah, it should be to cover a collection cycle. So assuming that, you know, you have adequate working capital, that you have what's called positive working capital, that, you know, current assets at a minimum equal current liabilities, you need to be able to convert all of those uh, all of those receivables into cash. So, you know, typically for a well-run business that's collecting most, if not all, their AR on time, you know, that could be 30 to 40 days probably. Okay. Thank you. I think that, that helps us get a, a, a bit of insight on this. Um, when you're thinking a as a seller and you're thinking perhaps a, a year from now, um, uh, we, we've seen scenarios in which companies have carried a lot of cash on their balance sheet. And we've seen some buyers that have taken different approaches to evaluating working capital. Uh, for example, taking a, a year's average of cash um, on the balance sheet. Uh, can you, Mike, can you give us, or Mike or Matt, either one, um, can you give us some help in, in some methods for determining the adequate amount of working capital? Well, I'll speak to, you know, just this point, because I think it's important. Oftentimes, you know, as I mentioned before, most most companies, most small IT services companies, tech-enabled services companies are overcapitalized by the strictest definition, meaning they have more positive networking capital than that's probably required. So, you know, if you look at the working capital, networking capital uh, of zero, which would mean that current assets minus current liabilities, um, you know, equals zero, uh, the delta between those two things, that anything in addition to that is considered positive networking capital. Um, and, you know, um, oftentimes uh, people keep more positive networking capital around for all the reasons we talked about earlier. They just want it to be more convenient. They don't want to have to get into their line of credit or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, now, it's it's the tactic of some buyers to look at the average positive networking capital as to what's required to run the business, when in fact that may not be the case. Um, and they may request that you leave that amount of positive networking capital in the business on the sale. And, and we think that's probably an overreach. Um, we do think it's appropriate to leave 30 days of operating expenses uh, in the business, but uh, 30 to 40 days, but not, not you know, not, a, you know, twice what you might need to operate the business or uh, three times 
you know, uh, and these are coverage ratios. You can look at what a coverage ratio is. You can look that up online. But, you know, uh, wildly uh, overcapitalized businesses are ones that have a lot of positive networking capital. Um, you don't want to leave that in the business because technically as an owner, that is your money. And you've just chosen chosen to leave it in the business for uh, ease of operations, essentially. And so being able to determine what is the actual adequate amount of working capital that passes the test of a buyer not having to put money in post-close um, is the adequate amount. Any amount in addition to that, you should be able to harvest. Um, and typically that gets paid out after a collection cycle or at about 90 days. Sometimes you'll hear the term true up. Um, that's typically when that gets paid out. But hopefully that adds some clarity and answers the question, Ryan. You know, I'll just add a, a little bit, Ryan. I think that to your point that, you know, when thinking a, a year ahead of time um, is, you know, to Mike's point, you know, thinking about, the cash on hand of the business, but also thinking about, you know, if, if there are any long-term debts, uh, debt in the business and, and thinking about that and, and managing that. I mean, shoot, you know, uh, way back in the day when we were running our own business and we kept way more cash in the business than we needed. We, we almost felt like, well, geez, we're, we're doing the right thing because we're protecting ourselves. And it's almost like a, um, kind of an immature, uh, for us, it was sort of a immature mentality that it made us feel protected. Whereas the reality is, is the business just continues to go along. You're managing the business and you're, you're, you're managing your AR. And, and that's, you know, that demonstrates a level of maturity. So, you know, when you're thinking about that in the context of M&A readiness, you know, you're thinking about the fundamentals, which then makes it a whole bunch easier to just go to the formula for, you know, sort of what is truly cash-free, debt-free with an appropriate buffer. And that's exact kind of leading into to just cash-free, debt-free. I, I just want to make sure if I to totally understand stand this, I could probably Mike, Mike or Matt could probably use another just a definition update on what cash-free, debt-free means. Uh, what what we've seen in deals is that uh, sellers essentially need to not have debt in the deal. Debt will not transfer into the deal. Is that, is that a correct assumption? Yes, particularly for long-term debt. Right. So uh, it's very rare that a buyer will assume long term debt. I, I don't want to say never, but it's very rare that they will. Usually they want to retire that debt. And the primary reason they want that is because they have to be able to buy the business without an, any encumbrances. And typically when you have long term debt, you've made a pledge to the bank or to someone else, whoever has loaned you the money that they're going to secure that debt with the assets of the business, including your AR. And so you have to be able to sell the business without those liens, if you want to think of it that way, on your business associated with, uh, say, a loan or uh, security that uh, someone might uh, require for that debt. So that's why um, 
you know, debt-free is an important concept that almost in every case is a consideration because to transfer that security or to transfer personal guarantees, which are often also, you know, many times required in small business on debt, uh, is challenging. So it's it's best and most buyers, I'd say 99% of the buyers want to be debt-free, particularly um, as it relates to long-term debt. Now, trade payables, which are technically also debt, are generally assumed in a transaction. And then a trade payable would be, hey, you're going to pay your lease payment for your office, or you've got to pay, uh, you know, for utilities, or you've got to pay for, you know, a variety of things that are in the normal course of business. And those are those are assumed. So they don't go into the debt-free category. Um Cash free is an interesting concept because cash free is actually um, in the strictest definition in a fast growing business might not be the right way to think about it. Um, and why I say that is if you have an inordinate amount of uh, your assets on the ledger of your balance sheet tied up in AR, in a cash-free, debt-free transaction, you relinquish the AR to the buyer. Um, and, you know, how that's handled uh, is pretty important um, as it relates to a coverage ratio associated with the liability side of the balance sheet. And, you know, we're, we've got a great team here at Revenue Rocket that, that specializes in this and helps our clients negotiate these every day. I know these... Topics sometimes can be a little bit uh, confusing, um, but it's important to understand sort of, you know, whether a cash-free, debt-free transaction will work for you as a seller um, or uh, whether a different approach on calculating working capital would be more fair uh, to allow the business to be transitioned as a going concern and yet allow you to harvest the most of that working, the, the maximum amount of excess working capital. And um, so a little bit more of a question, uh, and a little bit more of an answer to the question that you asked, but hopefully added some clarity. Uh, absolutely. And that kind of went into there. There's definitely a view that Buyers typically want a cash-free, debt-free, and sellers uh, want a bit more of a coverage ratio approach. And uh, depending on what side of the table you're on, it, there's a, a there's it's certainly a point in the negotiation, and which leads me to to the uh, to a general question. And Matt, I, I know that you've been dealing with this a lot uh, lately and in the last few deals. Uh, working capital always seems to be contentious, and I've been in a, certainly a number of conversations that have been um, uh, almost argumentative. And I'd love to. Do you have any advice to sellers and buyers of, of how to how, how do you approach this from an emotional standpoint and in a negotiation standpoint? Uh, you've been really great at, at getting through some of these impasses, and I'd love to hear hear your thoughts. Um. Thanks, Ryan. You, you probably, because working capital is sort of one of the last things, right? And and appropriately so, because you you know it 
it's on the heels of um, all of the due diligence that is validating the deal structure uh, that was set forth in the letter of intent. And so it, it has to come towards the towards the end of the process. Well, um, the end of the process is is also going to be the most emotional part of the process oftentimes for sellers because it's sort of that point in which they are, um, you know, getting ready to, to let go. Um, and, and it's oftentimes the case, especially with, you know, founder led businesses, which we oftentimes see in this space. And so the reason I say that is, is it's just, it, it is a naturally emotional time. <laughs> and, and so then you are, uh, entering into the equation money. And and we know that that's only going to raise emotions. So what are some of the ways in which we like to attack it? A, an early definition of what uh, working capital or the structure, the expected structure of a deal. So right in the letter of intent, putting the expectation forward that it is a cash-free, debt-free situation. So early in the stage. And then if there's advisors on both sides of the equation, then those advisors should be able to get together and and define what, you know, agree upon what cash-free, debt-free means, right, first off, and and then lay the path for how to determine uh, the working capital peg, right, the, you know, what is necessary for operating the business as a going concern. And, and so, you know, and if there isn't advisors in, on, on both sides of the equation, then just opening up the discussion and putting it out on the table that here's the path, right? And here's the fair and logical path that, you know, nobody's trying to make a cash grab towards the end of a process, that there is a very logical path to, um, defining both what cash-free, debt-free means as well as what a, a working capital peg allotment will be uh, to, you know, to that everybody can agree upon. And so if you can agree upon the logic and you can agree upon the process, well, then hopefully um, you're, you're doing what it takes to uh, reduce the, the emotion, if you will. Um, and doing so early is always better than later. And, and, uh, you know, sometimes it's easier to do than others. Yeah, I'll, I'll add here, if there's a plug for an advisor, I think this is where it's at. Um, if you were trying to try to negotiate working capital alone, uh, it's very difficult. You still have to work with the people across the table. And this is something where uh, I think you literally feel cash being pulled out of your pocket as a seller. And uh, you have to have a, a you need help from someone to do the pushing and shoving around that. I would also add that, you know, the working capital negotiation directly impacts purchase price. Right. So at this point, you know, usually to Matt's point, you're through due diligence. We're down to the final strokes. And you're looking at a schema for working capital um, that needs to be applied at and after the transaction. Um, because, for example, there may be 
uh, expenses that come into the working capital calculation you didn't even know about until after the, the transaction. Uh, things like utility bills that may cover a period of time where you own the business part of the time as a seller and a buyer owns it for another part of the time. And those things, you know, in short, follow the ownership. But then, you know, there's always the question, well, how do you get that figured out, right? Well, that gets done um, in the true up, in this, you know, true up that typically happens about 90 days out and gets reconciled in that true up. Uh, likewise, there may be a payment that comes in, and this is, again, where cash-free, debt-free can be a little tricky. Um, you know, let's say you, the day of close, you get a material payment from a from a vendor. Well, that technically um, is in a cash-free, debt-free would be the seller's payment, but it does impact how you calculate working capital. And so coverage is important, um, and how coverage is actually calculated is important. So, you know, we think that debt-free with a with a reasonable coverage ratio and a true-up um, can take a little bit of the drama out of the uh, uh, negotiation. And uh, to your point, Ryan, I think being able to have an outside advisor's opinion on this and being able to, you know, uh, go to bat on your behalf to make sure that uh, it's fair because no unfair working capital negotiation will actually work out. It, it's got to be, you know, your buyers buying a going concern uh, with fair working capital and they understand how either a working capital deficit or a positive net working capital above what's required is going to get resolved. Um, sometimes buyers will agree to kind of a negative net working capital position um, and have that adjust purchase price or in some cases, uh, you know, there's other components of the negotiation that that would drive, you know, um, parties to agree to something um, in the working capital negotiation. The takeaway is that there's always a negotiation typically and your best position to have someone who, you know, negotiates this every day working on your behalf to optimize. Yeah, thank, thanks, Mike. I, I have just one quick last question, and I'll turn it over to Matt for any uh, thoughts as well. But uh, is working capital typically considered part of an enterprise value? Like I, when you say, hey, the enterprise value of a deal was X, uh, is the harvested working capital part of that? Um, well, certainly the harvest, yes. I mean, so the the overall harvest to the seller of, of being able to – Harvest that excess working capital um, based upon, upon, again, a fair definition um, is certainly part of the overall enterprise value of what is achieved by the seller in the transaction, right? And so, you know, we also consider excess compensation, you know, part of the overall enterprise value that can be uh, realized by a seller if they're selling in and speaking to your one of your favorite podcast there, Ryan. So, um, yeah, I, I, I certainly think so. 